So our culture is an entire system of deception. And the scriptures have a lot to say about it. Uh, They have a lot to say about lying, about bearing false witness, and those kinds of things. But what I want to do in our time this morning is to consider a particular facet of deception, namely self-deception. Self-deception. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, verse 18, Paul writes, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. So Paul tells those in, the, in, the, in this congregation, which was riddled, as we know, with, with uh, quarrels and divisions, don't be self-deceived. Don't be self-deceived. Those of you who are full of intellectual pride, uh, those of you who always feel compelled to express your personal opinion, who always feel compelled to express your own, own ideas and thoughts, don't be a fool, Paul says. Don't be enamored with human wisdom. Rather, evaluate your personal opinions and wisdom by the standard of God's revelation. Let no man deceive himself. Uh, Which is quite a challenge, uh, considering what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 17, verse 9. Most of you are familiar with this verse. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart of man, Jeremiah says is not honest. It's not honest. In fact, it leads us astray from what is right. It leads us astray from truth. It leads us astray from a a right perspective. It's crafty. Uh, The kind of craftiness that we're talking about is illustrated, I think, in numerous places uh, in Scripture. But one example is in 2 Kings chapter 10, if you want to turn there. 2 Kings chapter 10, Uh, this is when King Jehu uh, sought to rid the northern kingdom of Israel of Baal worship. 2 Kings chapter 10, picking up there in verse 18. And again, just trying to sort of, uh, if you will, kind of construct what this dynamic is all about. Like what what are the ingredients, what are the factors that are at play when when a person uh, is deceives themselves. So we get some clues in, in several passages. Here, verse 18 says, Then Jehu gathered all the people and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little, Jehu will serve him much. Now summon all the prophets of Baal, all his worshipers and all his priests. Let no one be missing, for I have a great sacrifice for Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. But Jehu did it in cunning. That's our our term. Jehu did it in cunning so that he might destroy the worshipers of Baal. Jehu said, sanctify a solemn assembly for Baal, and they proclaimed it. And then Jehu sent throughout Israel, and all the worshipers of Baal came so that there was not a man left who did not come. And when they went into the house of Baal, the house of Baal was filled from one end to the other. He said to the one who was in charge of the wardrobe, bring out garments for all the worshipers of Baal. And so he brought out garments for them. Jehu went into the house of Baal with 
Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, and he said to the worshipers of Baal, Search and see that there is here with you none of the servants of the Lord, but only the worshipers of Baal. Then they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu had stationed for himself eighty men outside, and he had said, The one who permits any of the men whom I bring into your hands to escape shall give up his life in exchange. Then it came about as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering that Jehu said to the guard and to the royal officers, Go in, kill them. Let none come out. And they killed them with the edge of the sword. That word translated cunning, at least I'm using New American Standard this morning, but there in verse 19 is the term also used in Jeremiah 17.9 regarding our hearts. So you just ask, what, what did Jehu do? Well, he did several things. First, he made false claims. Right? He made false claims about his objectives. Uh, he also made a promise, but he made a promise that he had no intention of fulfilling and ultimately betrayed the worshipers of Baal, as it says, with cunning. So this is the, this is the nature right, of, of what we're talking about, and this is the nature of an unredeemed heart. Uh, it tricks you regarding its intentions, Right. In fact, some of you, when, when it, in these passages where it speaks about um, deception, being deceived, and if you have an ESV, you'll see instead of it translated in most of those cases as, as deceiving, it translates it as, as being led astray or to lead others astray, which is essentially the idea. And so it, it tricks you regarding its intentions. It leads you astray and makes false promises, which is why you should, shouldn't ever follow your heart. Right? You don't ever follow your heart, your heart. You lead your heart. Proverbs 28, verse 26 says, He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely will be delivered. Uh, I like what Brad, Brad Bigney, he's a pastor up in Kentucky, he writes this. Some of you have read the book Gospel Treason, but I like what he has to say here about the heart. He says, Quote, the Bible points us back to the heart with a very different mission from what the world has in mind. The Bible tells us to direct our heart toward God's ways. Go to your heart, he says, to inspect it and to direct it, but don't dare follow it. Go there to rein it in. Don't go there listening. Go there talking and speaking truth from God's word. So, to deceive others uh, is tragic, to be deceived is tragic, but to be self-deceived even, even more so. Uh, the Standard in, uh, Stanford, Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy attempts to explain uh, this dynamic, says this, minimally self-deception involves a person who seems to acquire and maintain some false belief in the teeth of evidence to the contrary as a consequence of some motivation. So when you deceive, your, when you deceive someone else, you lead them astray, you lead them away from what is right and lead them away from, from what is, is true and trustworthy. But with self-deception, you lead yourself away from the truth. You, leave your, you lead yourself away from what is right, from what is trustworthy. You feed yourself a false belief even though you've been exposed 
to what is true or real. Eventually, if that kind of thing persists, you get to the place where you fool yourself about your awareness of the truth. Which again, is a, that, that's not just a, a tragedy, that's a, that's a frightening place to be. A frightening place to be. Now, who are the self-deceived in the Bible? Well there, well, there are some obvious ones. For example, anyone who thinks that he has the meaning of life all figured out uh, without factoring God into that equation, who lie to themselves about who they are, who lie to themselves about who God is and why they exist, their, their purpose in life, surely they are self-deceived. Those without a Christian worldview whose speculations uh, are empty, and whose hearts are darkened, says Romans one twenty one. Then there are those who are uh, seeking feelings or they're seeking experiences or blessings or healings or angels or whatever, but they're only interested in the byproducts of faith but not Christ himself. And we see examples of this in, in uh, Jesus' ministry, those who tagged along, those who associated with Jesus, those who spent time with Jesus, not because they actually wanted to learn from Jesus or to be conformed, conformed in their life by Christ, but just those who wanted the associated blessings, right? They wanted the things that came along with being with Christ, but they had no concern for honoring him or serving him or loving him and obeying him. They were only around for the byproducts that were attached to him, These, the products of Christ. Uh, there's people that do this now, I mean, there's people that come to church. There'll be people that are here this morning that are not here because of Christ, right? They're here for the byproducts, right? They're here to, to maybe stimulate or to satisfy some intellectual curiosity. Some people, they're just looking for social connections and relationships. Uh, they want to feel a part of something. They want to belong to something. If it, why not give church a, a try? And so they'll come. They'll build relationships. They'll tolerate some level of, of truth. But it never really drives them to, to, to the worship of Christ alone. So they're just attracted to the, 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 the benefits that come with him, the blessings that are associated with him, but not Christ himself. Surely... Surely they have deceived themselves. Then sometimes you'll have people who want to be seen as wise. They want to be seen as clever and and fashionable. Uh, They actually envy other believers who are really humble, right? So they actually actually envy other believers who are actually humble and who who are actually prayerful and who are actually walking with the Lord and, and have a a genuine godliness about them, and they, and they themselves want to be viewed that way, right? They want to be viewed as those who are godly and humble and who walk with Christ. And so they, they mimic others. They, they pretend to be uh, familiar with these things, but it's all external. It's all for show. There's no dependence on God, no, no godliness cultivated through suffering, no true discipleship in their life. They, they are like new vintage clothes. You know, you can do this. You can buy new vintage clothes. Like clothes that are new, but they look like they're old, right? Uh, or, or it's like getting a piece of new antique furniture, 
right? So you see this a lot. You know, you go over to Woodstock Furniture Outlet Store and you can see furniture that looks like it's 100 years old, but it's actually, it just came off the, the assembly line, right? Or maybe it's a t-shirt or a pair of jeans or, or a dresser that looks tested and full of character, but it's not that at all. It only appears that way. And some people are like that. They want the look of having character, but they don't want to do the work that it takes to develop that character. They want the look or the reputation of being wise and godly, but they don't actually want to go through things like repentance, or they don't want to have to actually study or actually exercise the disciplines required to to really become wise and godly over the course of time. Surely they are self-deceived and foolish. But eventually it will catch up, right? That, 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 that shallow, uh, that veneer will, will, be, will be exposed in time. After all, Paul said, what back in verse Corinthians 3? The Lord will catch the wise in their craftiness. Uh, he's going he's gonna to capture them, right? Uh, overtake them. Now, in, in order to get a handle, I think, on this very serious problem, I say serious because I see it, all, I see it in, in counseling uh, week to week. Uh, it, it, it crops up for sure here at Faith Community Church. Uh, the Faith Community Church and the people of Faith Community Church are not, are not immune to this. We're not immune to this problem, and it's a serious thing. So I want to, just to get kind of, a, again, a handle on it, I want us to take a few minutes. Just, again, we're just looking at different passages, and this is a long one, uh, Jeremiah chapter 42. Jeremiah 42 and 43. It's a large passage, but I think it'll help us to see some of the things that are going on when people deceive themselves. And here you have the remnant of Judah asking Jeremiah to pray to God and find God's will on what they should do regarding the, the Babylonians. This is uh, I, Jeremiah 42 verse 1. Then all the commanders of the forces, Johanan, Uh, All these guys and all the people, both small and great, approached and said to the prophet Jeremiah, verse 2, Please let our petition come before you and pray for us to the Lord your God. That is for all this remnant, because we are left but a few out of many, as your own eyes now see us, that the Lord your God may tell us the way in which we should walk and the thing that we should do. Verse 4, Then Jeremiah the prophet said to them, I have heard you. Behold, I am going to pray to the Lord your God in accordance with your words. Just kind of, in fact, just if you if you like to write in your Bible, I'd underline, pray for us, verse two, pray for us, accordance with your words, verse four, and I will tell you the whole message with the Lord that the Lord will answer you, and I will not keep back a word from you. And then they said to Jeremiah, May the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us if we do not act in accordance with the whole message with which the Lord your God will send you to us. Whether it is pleasant or unpleasant, we will listen to the voice of the Lord of our God to whom we are sending you so that it may go well with us when we listen to the voice of the Lord our God. Verse 7, now at the end of ten days, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Then he called for these, all these individuals and said to them, verse 9, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, to whom you sent me to present your petition before him, If you will indeed stay in this land, then I will build you up and not tear you down. And I will plant you and not uproot you, for I will relent concerning the calamity that I have afflicted on you. Do not be afraid of the king of Babylon, whom you are now fearing. That's important. Do not be afraid of him, declares the Lord, for I am with you to save you and deliver you from his hand. 
I will also show you compassion so that he will have compassion on you and restore you to your own soil. But if you were going to say, we will not stay in this land so as not to listen to the voice of the Lord your God, saying, no, but we will go to the land of Egypt where we will not see war or hear the sound of a trumpet or hunger for bread, and we will stay there. Then in that case, listen to the word of the Lord, O remnant of Judah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, if you really set your mind to enter Egypt and go in to reside there, then the sword, which you are afraid of, will overtake you there in the land of Egypt, and the famine about which you are anxious will follow closely after you there in Egypt, and you will die there. So all the men who set their mind to go to Egypt to reside there will die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence, and they will have no survivors or refugees from the calamity that I'm going to bring on them. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, as my anger and wrath have been poured out on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so my wrath will be poured out on you when you enter Egypt, and you will become a curse, an object of horror, an imprecation, a reproach, and you will see this place no more. The Lord has spoken to you, O remnant of Judah. Do not go into Egypt. You should clearly understand that today I have testified against you, for you have only deceived yourselves. Again, literally, you have acted errantly in your souls. For it is you who sent me to the Lord your God, saying, Pray for us to the Lord our God, and whatever the Lord our God says, tell us and we will do it. So I have told you today, but you have not obeyed the Lord your God, even in whatever he has sent me to tell you. Therefore, you should now clearly understand that you will die by the sword, by famine and pestilence in the place where you wish to go and reside. Chapter 43, but as soon as Jeremiah, whom the Lord their God had sent, had finished telling all the people all the words of the Lord their God, that is all these words, Azariah, Johanan, all the arrogant men said to Jeremiah, you are telling a lie. The Lord our God has not sent you to say, You are not to enter Egypt to reside there. But Baruch, the son of Neriah, is inciting you against us to give us over into the hand of the Chaldeans so they will put us to death or exile us to Babylon. So Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the commanders of the forces and all the people did not obey the voice of the Lord to stay in the land of Judah. So what are some of the things you notice going on in this passage? Well, they want, they seem to want, right, to sincerely know God's will in the situation, right? We see that back in in verse 3. Again, at least that is what they say, because this is part of self-deception. Self-deception occurs when there's a discrepancy between what we say and what we do, right? When we say something, when we profess something, when we make some sort of confession, and don't follow through on it or do it without any intention to follow through on it, self-deception is at play. And so they seem to want to sincerely know what the Lord's will is. Perhaps they truly believe that they will obey. I don't know. That according to verse 6. But, and these are key features, I think. They're motivated by fear. They're motivated by fear. See that in verse 11 and verse 16. They're anxious. And again, this is not the fear of the Lord. This is a fear of circumstances that's driving them. This is a fear of man. Yes, it's a fear of death. I mean, they do fear death. But again, based on what Luke, Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, it says, don't fear, don't fear man who can only do what? Kill the body. Right? Fear the one who is able and is 
powerful enough to deal with body and soul. So they're motivated by fear, but the wrong kind of fear, not a fear of the Lord. And they end up accusing Jeremiah of lying. Right? So, so now the ones that are self-deceived are the ones that are actually accusing the truth-teller of lying. So they end up accusing Jeremiah of falsehood, of him trying to actually sabotage them. So it's a sort of paranoia when they actually are the liars. They're the liars. Again, you notice the connection here between these different things. Pride and self-deception, fear, a fear of man and self-deception, this discrepancy between what we say and what we do, all those are factors. Turn over uh, to Jeremiah 49, verse 16. Jeremiah 49, verse 16. This is a prophecy against Edom. It says, As for the terror of you, the arrogance of your heart has deceived you. So here we have again this issue of pride. O you who live in the clefts of the rock, who occupy the height of the hill, though you make your nest as high as an eagle's, I will bring you down from there, declares the Lord. God says, your, over, your overconfidence, your presumptuous heart has led you astray to entertain such false hopes that you could hide from God, that you, that you could go somewhere on this planet that God does not see and cannot reach. Self-deception. First John chapter 1, verse, nine, verse 8 says, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Again, these are just different examples of this Old and New Testament. Again, denying the obvious, right, in this case, that we, that we have a sin nature, right? Those who would deny that they actually have sin, self-deceived. James uh, chapter 1 Verse 21 says this, But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. And then he gives this illustration, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Again, you'll notice the same sort of dynamics. What needs to happen is clear, right? So when you went to the, to the bathroom this morning, I think most of you look like you went to the bathroom this morning. Well, you went there, you, you looked in the mirror, and what needed to happen was obvious, right? True, right? So it's, it's obvious what, what needs to take place. And there, in this case, there, there might even be some sort of claim, uh, sort of claim to be devoted or to be, to be godly, but what James is hammering in his epistle is there are those that say things but don't do things. He, he goes on and he talks about those who say, claim that they have faith but they don't, do, they don't have works, right? That their faith doesn't translate into an obedient life. Works of faith, works of love, acts of service. It's, it's an empty profession, and so what needs to happen is clear, and there, 
there might be this supposed claim to be devoted and godly, but there is also along with that an unwillingness to bend our lives to conform to the truth. So again, it's like going to that mirror and it's like seeing the obvious and this is what needs to happen, but then just an unwillingness to change, to not actually do anything about it. It's like those in Jeremiah. Jeremiah, we, didn't, we want to know what God's will is. You go find out what God's will is. You come back and tell us and we will absolutely do it. Jeremiah does it. He comes back and says, this is clear. This is what needs to happen. There's no gray area. Don't go to Egypt. Don't go. And if you don't go, the Lord will honor that. And then they say, wait a minute. <laughs> right? Now Jeremiah is the one that's deceiving them. They weren't actually willing to conform to what the will of God was, right? They said that they would, but they wouldn't actually do it when the time came. Again, we all have this tendency to deceive ourselves. And we live and we work and we play around people every day who also have this. And there are special, I think, challenges in identifying self-deceit because we are so quick to rationalize things. We are so quick to make excuses and to shift the blame. And when that tendency in us is exposed, unless the Holy Spirit graciously works in our hearts, we simply kick things into overdrive, overdrive and with greater determination attempt to defend and to deflect and to persist in our unbelief. I mean, we'll just keep going down that road unless the Lord intervenes. That's why it's, it's self-deception, right? Because it, it, you're deceiving and misleading yourself, but at the same time, your ability to discern it is going away. Moreover, when a sin that we have been committing and excusing in our lives for some time is exposed or gets a promotion on the, you might call it the worse than I thought list, or it goes up a notch on the vice list, the self-deception works against us. We may have admitted doing something when it was more acceptable, but once it is recognized as something that is offensive to God or offensive to others, we are less likely to admit our struggle and our guilt unless, of course, again, the Holy Spirit does His work. That is to say, it's okay to admit to a small offense, but when we realize that it is a federal offense in God's world, it is a little harder to deal with to admit that we are guilty of such terrible things. Such as the way we really treat our spouses. Or the use of pornography or the way that we may slander or gossip about others. So, so what happens is this, this dynamic starts playing out and we, we start confessing the, the low-hanging fruit, right? The, the more acceptable things, but then the things that we realize are, are more more serious, we begin to sort of kind of draw a line between those two things and it becomes more and more difficult because of the self-deception to actually confess and own up to those things. So how do we deceive ourselves? Well, there are, you might call them self-deception strategies that apply uh, to the things that we believe and the things that we practice. This is actually adapted, I, I read a book years ago called I Told Me So. (laughs) It's a good title. Uh, By Tim Elshoff, and he actually refers to several of these. And these these are kind of, I've kind of pulled these from his his writings. But he, he refers to this first strategy, he refers to it as attention management. Uh, that, that is when we just, it's just simple avoidance of the evidence. 
we avoid dealing with what is true and, and we see a problem in our lives, but rather than giving it our earnest attention and working on it, we just see something else, right? We see something shiny instead of something that's detestable. In fact, we may also give direct critical attention to the object that is challenging our practice. We're very adept at doing this as Christians, at protecting our self-deceived, sinful territory. Take, for example, our entertainment choices, you know, the things that we're just taking in. You know, it's like everything's fine, and then all of a sudden somebody says, Did, so you, you, you're, you actually watch, you watch that? Or you, <laughs> you, not what you watch, but you watch that much of that? <laughs> you know, you spent 12 hours on Saturday doing what? <laughs> Somebody says something, and then, and then that defense kicks in, right? Rather than actually maybe, and again, I'm not saying that what you did was wrong. What I'm saying is, is it worth just saying, is it good for me? Is it profitable? Does it glorify Christ? But rather than even ask the question, a lot of times it's just, we don't, we don't want to see it. We don't want to address it and deal with it. The second strategy he mentions is procrastination. We see the problem and we resolve to deal with it when? Later. Later. Not now. Not while it's fresh on our minds, but sometime down the road when it's more convenient. And the reason why we, the reason why we postpone dealing with it is because we really do believe that we can deal with it. I mean, th- in other words, think, think of the, the self-deception that's at play there. I'm be- this is being brought to the surface right now. It's being challenged right now. I'm feeling conviction right now. But rather than dealing with it right now, I'm going to deal with it later. And the assumption is that you can do that. <laughs> and then I see this all the time in, in, in counseling. People will, and, and probably the one that comes, comes to mind, is just people that are unwilling to repent now over something that is so clear, and they'll make this statement and say, well, I, I'm, just not, I'm just not ready to do that. Uh, I, I just don't want to give that up right now. We just disagree about this and that and the other. But you know what? The Lord forgives. And so, you know, if, if the Lord down the road, you know, I repent, I mean, the Lord is going to forgive me. I said, there's only one problem with that. The Lord only forgives those who repent. And you may not be able or willing then to do what you're being given the opportunity to do right now. It's like, it's like they're, they're presuming upon God. God's going to forgive me. I say, well, yeah, God is forgiving, and God will forgive anyone who turns away from their sin and repents. The problem is you're assuming that you're going to be at least in the same place spiritually a month from now or 10 years from now, but I would argue that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. Because the pride in, a, in, a, in making that very assumption is an evidence of self-deception, which means your sensitivity is going to go down to that sin, right? So procrastination, it, it's, it's one of our strategies. Let me put these up here. I'm sorry. Oh, those were all up there at once. <clears throat> the third strategy, perspective switching. This happens when we become uncomfortable with our perspective, and so we change it. That is to say, we choose to adopt a new perspective which is more attractive and less condemning to us. Again, we've seen this in people's lives that we've counseled. We've seen it even in the life of our church. It, it, it happens sometimes 
I want to say happens in every case where someone who once professed faith in Christ ultimately is disciplined out of the church. This, this is something that sort of goes along with that territory, is that at one point, the very thing that, that, that they're doing, they would have been very bold about, very clear about, that this is sinful, this is wrong, but then they get to this place where all of a sudden they switch their perspectives. And they don't just switch their perspectives about the sin itself, they switch their perspectives about a lot of things. They'll get to the place where they'll, and I've had this before, someone who's, who, who went off into a homosexual lifestyle, was disciplined out of the church, who only a year prior had made a bold claim about their belief, and not just belief in God's Word, but their love for God's Word. Twelve months later, they're, they're, they're holding their Bible and saying, that's just a bunch of myths. I don't believe that anymore. That's just a bunch of made-up stories. Think about a seminary professor or pastor who holds to a certain view on something. Maybe they hold to a view of, of no divorce, no remarriage, which again, I'm not saying one of, one of the other as far as views of divorce and remarriage, but they might, a person might hold to that view, but then his wife divorces him, and guess what he does? He changes his perspective. So the question I have in those situations is, what was the ground of your perspective to begin with? <laughs> I mean, like, like, were you arguing? Were you adopting that perspective? Was it from the scriptures, or was it just a personal thing? Just a personal opinion? Well, if it's just a personal opinion, of course it's going to switch. Just like, if, you, if you're going to ha- hold a position, then hold it because of what scripture says. And if you change your position, then change your position based upon, well, I now understand scripture to mean this, and, de- and, and defend it and, and argue it from that. But don't just change your perspective because circumstances change in your life. But people, again, will do this. They'll change their perspectives altogether. And what I found is that it's not, it's not that people change their theology and then change their morals. It's that they change in their morals and then they change their theology to make their immorality more acceptable to them. Because they're dealing with a crisis of conscience, right? Because they've said something is wrong. Now they love that thing that they once said or even maybe still profess that it is a wrong thing. And they come to this point where they're like, something's got to give. I mean, either I've got to give up the immorality or I've got to change my theology. And usually it's change your theology. Elshoff mentions a fourth strategy in his book, Rationalization. This is about us actually constructing a justification for our behavior or our actions. We might be indulging in some sexual sin or nursing a grudge or be enslaved to food or our technology, but at least I'm not beating my wife. You know, it's like I'm doing all those things, but at least I'm not going to bars. Sometimes men will justify pornography because their wives are cold toward them sexually. They see that that is a, maybe a better alternative than divorce. Or with sinful anger, a mother blows up, yells at her children, feels bad after the fact, but says, at least I don't hit them. Nobody knows what it's like to have a child that does such and such. They know how to push my buttons. I have to, I have, I have, to have a way to get out my frustration. But again, with that kind of anger, it's not the kid's fault. It's, it's your heart. It's a heart issue. How do people delude themselves? Well, how did the false teachers attempt to delude the Colossian church? Paul says, I say this, Colossians 2, 4, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive arguments. 
How did Satan delude and deceive Eve? With persuasive speech. And that is what we do. We persuade, we sweet-talk ourselves into thinking that falsehood is truth and that the truth is a lie. Final strategy is what the author calls resentiment. Resentiment. We, this is when we reorder our sentiments. We end up scorning that which we cannot have. So we adjust our values or preferences to accommodate what is realistic for us. We reorder the way that we feel about something. Now this is important to think about. What are the effects of sin on our understanding and faith? What are the effects of sin on our understanding and faith? Well, first off, indulging in sin hampers our ability to understand ourselves and God. That is to say, sin leads to self-deception, which leads to further sin. John seven seventeen, Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, do his will he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. What did Jesus mean? Well, what he meant was that those who are fundamentally committed to doing God's will will be guided by him in the affirmation of his truth. They commit to do his will, and in doing it, God, God's truth is self-authenticating through the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. Through obedience comes greater understanding. But the opposite of this is in Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So in this scenario, a commitment to disobey and to do your own thing requires that you suppress the truth. And that is exactly what happens. People reject the truth of God, not because of a lack of evidence, but because of a moral rebellion. They have a pre-commitment to a certain kind of life. Psalm 14.1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, they are corrupt, they have committed abominable deeds, there is no one who does good. So there's this clear connection between our deeds, our actions, and our morality or lack of morality and the conclusions that we draw in our hearts about God. Ephesians 4.17, This I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, Paul says, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they having become callous have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. So there's this relationship between cognition and behavior that we have to understand because we are often closer to danger and peril peril than we realize. If we recognize the potential for self-deception and the fact that sin clouds our understanding and can eclipse our thinking and our spiritual insight, then we will be more likely to guard our hearts. Because we know that immorality and idolatry hampers our ability to reason correctly, especially regarding moral and spiritual matters. So the more a a person indulges in sin, the more his or her mind is corrupted, sometimes to the point where someone's awareness of God is virtually deadened. This is the downward spiral. Sin corrupts thinking, cognition, which leads to more sin, which brings about further corruption of the mind, which leads to further moral degradation. There comes a time when we cannot live with the internal conflict, and so we make one of two choices. We either repent or we abandon our worldview and our convictions. 
So this, this should alert us to the dangers of indulging in sin. Indulging in sin has a cognitive effect on our understanding and perception. For instance, in adultery, right? We begin to have an emotional attachment, perhaps, to another person. We justify it to ourselves. We, we are, we're just a listening ear. We're just trying to help them, etc. But as that grows, a detachment occurs with our spouse because we cannot live with competing affections. As our affections increase for one, our affection decreases for the other. Our spouse may detect this and call the relationship into question, but defenses go up, rationalization, self-justification. We think that we are the exception. Because why? Because we're not thinking clearly, right? We're not the exception in those situations. And in small increments, these things cloud how we perceive reality. Dave Pallison writes this, Most sin is invisible to the sinner because it is simply how the sinner works, how the sinner perceives, wants, and interprets things. Once we see sin for what it really is, madness and evil intentions in our hearts, absence of any fear of God, slavery to various passions, then it becomes easier to see how sin is the immediate and specific problem all counseling deals with at every moment, not a general and remote problem. The core insanity of the human heart is that we violate the first commandment. We love anything except God unless our madness is checked by grace. So indulging in sin actually diminishes our capacity to understand truth and to know God. Again, I think back to church discipline cases. Seeming godly people that have been in church for years get involved in sin, and it is as if their ability to understand truth completely goes away. The second thing we need to note is that indulging in sin, indulging in sin creates a spiral effect which which endangers our faith and our eternal well-being. John Owen says this, sin always aims at the utmost. It always aims at the utmost. So if sin were allowed to have its free course and fullest extent, every lust would become adultery. If sin had its way, every doubt would become agnosticism and every act of covetousness would be robbery. Sin has no inward restraint. It desires, its desire is to go all out. 1 Timothy 1.18, Paul said, to Timothy, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the fr- prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith in a good conscience, which some have rejected. They've rejected a good conscience and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. How do you do that? How do you reject a good conscience? You do that by choosing to indulge in sinful desires, even though you may be professing faith. Hebrews 3, we find this warning, verse 12, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I mean, it's one of the reasons why we're here. It's one of the reasons why we gather, right? We gather to encourage each other to not do that. Don't be deceived. By sin. We, we get together like this 
every week to encourage one another, to put truth in front of each other's lives, to, to look into each other's lives, to know each other, to care for each other, and to say, hey, there's something going on in your life. This is what the Word of God says, and I want to help you with that. I want to hold you accountable to that. Why don't we do that? Because we don't want people to be hardened. We know how devastating that can be. So how can we f- work to fight this? How can we work to fight this? Let me just give you a few remedies. I'm going to put them all up here. Oh, that didn't work. All right, you have to jot them down. First of all, know the power of our enemy. We, gotta, we have to know the power of our enemy. One of the problems is that we just take sin too lightly. Sin is no respecter of persons. Sin doesn't care how many children you have. Sin does not care how many years you have been married. Sin could care less about your reputation. Again, sin always goes for the jugular vein. It always goes for the jugular. So part of this is just simply acknowledging that. It's just simply acknowledging the the danger that exists. Knowing the power of our enemy. Again, knowing, secondly, the tendency of our own hearts. We have to understand the tendency of our own hearts because we give ourselves way too much credit. Some don't believe the words of come thou fount of every blessing. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. If you don't believe that, you're setting yourself up for a great failure. If you don't, if you don't even believe that your heart is prone to wander, you're already headed for a disaster. There was a man once who actually thought, though everyone else rejected Jesus and abandoned him, that he never would. The desires of our hearts are powerful. Cornelius Plantinga says this, the desires of our hearts are like shelf-worn little deities, and they want what they want, and that is all that they know. So we need to know the tendency of our hearts. And we need to continually ask the Holy Spirit to search us. Number three, Psalm 139, search me, O God, know my heart. Verse 23, try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Psalm 26, two, examine me, O Lord, and try me, test my mind in my heart. This was a regular prayer in the, of the psalmist for the Lord to examine them, to search them. Psalm 51.3, David said this in that psalm of, of confessing his own sin. He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. How did, how did David know that? Well, God, David knew that because God penetrated his, his blindness and revealed it to him. To genuinely grow in holiness and to grow in the grace of Christ, we must say, by God's help, I want to be less and less self-deceived. I don't want to be deceived. I don't want to be deceived. I, I pray, folks, that if, if you were here last Sunday during communion and you, and you heard Pastor Kohler's appeal in, in, this, in this most recent church discipline situation uh, in the life of our congregation, I, I pray that one of the things that was running through your mind is this, Lord, don't let me be self-deceived. If, if, if what Pastor Shane was shared did not immediately cause you to think about your own heart, and the potential for you to go astray, and the potential for you to, to, to turn away from the truth, to talk yourself out of following Christ, 
if, 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 if your heart didn't go there, if you didn't say, Lord, please be gracious to me. Please don't let me be deceived. If, if your heart didn't go there, there's a problem. If, if all you were left with was there's this person that was in the church and then this happened in their life and then this is what the church needs to do, if it was all about them and at some point you didn't, you didn't reflect on your own life and just say, Lord, that could be me. If it didn't have that effect, that's a problem. No, we're not going to fully escape this in this life. But we need to ask for the Lord's help. And we, and we need to be un, uncomfortable living at the level of self-deception that we're living with right now. right? We're, we're, we're all, in a sense, deceived at some level. But we don't need to be comfortable with that. We need to ask God for help and he will most certainly do this. Uh, another, we need to be willing to fight our sin. We need to be willing to fight our sin as God reveals it to us. Romans 8:11, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die, but if you by this but if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There is no shortage of help in the gospel for you to fight your sin. If a person is not actually willing to fight their sin, then they will deceive themselves to an even deeper level. If I'm not dying to my sin and I'm going to continue to think of myself as a disciple, I will either need to be self-deceived about the call for the disciple to die to sin or about the fact that I am not dying. Self-deception affords me the opportunity of enjoying myself being thought of as a disciple without all of the painful busyness or the, the, the painful business of death and dying. And in self-deceit, we either do one of two things. We either change the terms of what it means to be a disciple, or we talk ourselves into thinking that dying is something different than what it really is. But we must stop making peace treaties with areas of our lives that are an affront to God. We must actively, as Proverbs 4.23 says, actively guard our hearts. We must be people who are quick to self-indict, to deal with our spiritual pride, to kill it. And we must be diligent to practice the truth that we have learned. Lastly, stay focused on the central truths of the gospel. Those simple truths are this. You are a sinner and you cannot save yourself. And that never changes. Even though you are redeemed, you never become a person who is able to save themselves from sin. Jesus Christ is the only sufficient Savior for sinners. Luther said it this way in faith alone. He says, people are not justified and do not receive life and salvation because of anything they've done. Rather, the only reason they receive life and salvation is because of God's grace through Christ. There is no other way. Many Christians are tired of hearing this teaching over and over. They think they learned it long ago. However, they barely understand how important it really is. If it continues to be taught as truth, the Christian church will remain united and pure, free from decay. This truth alone makes and sustains Christianity. You might hear immature Christians brag about how well they know that, they, that, that we are justified through God's grace and not because of anything we do, we, do not, we do to earn it. But if they go on to say that this truth is easy to put into practice, 
then they have no doubt, then, then have no doubt they don't know what they're talking about and they probably never will. We can never learn this truth completely or brag that we fully understand it. Learning this truth is an art. We will always remain students of it and it will always be our teacher. The gospel reminds us of our greatest need and of God's only remedy. The more we stay focused on these truths, the more alert we will be to the self-deceptive nature of our hearts and the cognitive consequences of our sin. So again, I, I've been, this is kind of a serious Bible study. You know, not a lot of smiles out there. Those, those ended about 45 minutes ago. It's a serious topic, folks, but, 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 I, but I'm just telling you, this is not just something that pops up every once in a while. Once a month, this is something that I, that I see all the time in counseling. And again, it's not just counseling those people in the community. I see this stuff going on in my own heart. I see it in, in the lives of people within our own congregation. Again, it's, it's in the lives of all of us to some degree, and we need to understand how this develops and how to guard against it. So we examine our lives. We examine the standard of Scripture. And again, this is what Scripture does. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul, spirit, both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There's no creature hidden from its sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Here's what you do. You look at your life, you look at the truth, and you find the inconsistencies. And when the inconsistency comes to light, you deal with it. You deal with it through repentance and faith. And you keep doing that, and you keep doing that, and you keep doing that. If you ever get to the place where you're not examining your heart, again, you're in a dangerous spot. If you ever get to the place where you examine your life, but you're not measuring your life up against the right standard, you're in a dangerous place. If you ever get to the place in your life where you're examining your heart, and you're looking at the standard... And you see the differences between those two things and you don't put in the effort to actually close the gap between those two things and deal with the hypocrisy and the duplicity and the difference between those two things, you're in a dangerous place. And so it's as simple as this. You hear the word of God. You're going to go, we're going to hear a message in a moment. It's, 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 it's examining your heart. It's hearing the word of God and saying, Lord, is there something in my life that doesn't line up with that? And if it doesn't line up with that, then by God's grace and through the, the, the enablement of the Holy Spirit, you, 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 you work to close that gap. And if you don't, if you walk away and you say, yeah, that was a great message, or yeah, I felt a little bit of conviction, but maybe later, right? Or, well, yeah, I know that I do that, but I'm not as bad as the person sitting to my right. If you do any of those things, I'm just saying that's self-deception is at play, and we need to guard against it. We need to guard against it. Puritan prayer, I'll close with this. This is from the Valley of Vision. Search, searcher of hearts, it is a good day. It is a good day to me when thou givest me a glimpse of myself. Sin is my greatest evil, but thou art my greatest good. Work in me more profound and abiding repentance. Give me the fullness of a godly grief that trembles and fears, yet ever trust and loves which is ever powerful and ever confident, grant that through the tears of repentance I may see more clearly the brightness and the glories of the saving cross. It's a good prayer.
good prayer. All right, guys, we'll, that, we'll close that out. Let me pray for us, and you guys are welcome.